Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 6, Too Clever by Half, where we will be looking at chapters 13 and 14 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Smartest Kid in the Room. As a brief introduction to our podcast, each week we will be examining a section of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, hopefully one that would make Master Elodin proud. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. And now it is time for our standard spoiler warning and disclaimers. Before we begin, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that you've either A, already read the main books, Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other works associated with the continuity, The Lightning Tree, and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, or B, you really love getting spoiled. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. One last thing, it is perfectly fine to critique the text as written that said, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. In short, don't be a jerk. All right, you have the rhyming couplets. Are you ready to have your 30 seconds worth of recap? I am. Do you have your stopwatch ready? That's a good question. No, I don't. Now, mind you, you chose to go 30 seconds. I did. Okie dokie. Are you ready to do your 30 second recap? Yes, I am. All right, in three, two, one, go. Chronicler meets Bast, and things go off with a blast. When Bast's fey heritage sets Chronicler's hair on edge, they get into a fight until Quoth sets things right. They shake hands and make up. While Quoth fills their cups, he tells them the tale of the time he did fail to speak the wind's name and instead invites shame when he bound the air in his lungs to the sky under the sun, Ben calls forth the wind, and to his will it bends, and it is soon with great surety that Ben distinguishes between intelligence and maturity. Ben and Quoth men fences over dinner, but their lessons get thinner. Oh, 30.79 seconds. No! You get to eat a cherry. You're the one who said you wanted it to be a 30-second challenge. Well, challenge is only worth something if you have a chance of failing. Which you did. Fine, we'll eat a stupid cherry. Well, I shall find you something that has a cherry in it because it's a little bit late in the season. Okay, fine. It won't be that gross. Maybe. Says you. Says me. <laughs> Cherries are wonderful. That's just your opinion, man. Fine, you win this time. So let's start our discussion for this week. For our lens, you chose the smartest kid in the room. Tell me why you picked that. The reason that I chose the smartest kid in the room for this particular section is because 
every time I've listened to this section or re-listened to this section, I just want to smack my freaking head because <laughs> Quoth is impulsive and he thinks he's so, so smart. And he hasn't come up against something where he is just a complete and utter forking idiot until now. He always picks up everything super quickly. He always is able to just say how smart he is, how much he seems like he's older than he is. Everyone gives him a lot of respect. He seems to be the only child in his troop and no one treats him like one. But this is a smack in the face reminding us that he is still a kid. It is very easy to forget that he's a kid throughout a lot of this. And yeah, you're right. He runs into the situation where he realizes that maybe the rules are there for a reason. I think we've all heard the term, think outside the box. Sometimes the box is there for a reason. Sometimes that box has been put in place by somebody who is smarter than you. Anarchists are all kinds of fun when you're a kid until you take driver's ed and then that whole screw your rules man approach suddenly seems pretty stupid when you have a car. Or any other sort of thing that could cause mass destruction. This section starts off with an interlude. This is where Bast and Chronicler meet each other for the first time. They're both used to being the smartest kid in the room. Chronicler, by virtue of being this famous scholar, Bast by virtue of being, well, the only kid in the room. He's 150 years old. Does that count as a kid in the Fey world? I think it does. He doesn't act much differently from a kid, and he definitely, well, he's more powerful than your average human child. He has the same childlike impulses and view of the world, and yeah, he's used to being cleverer than anybody else, or thinking he is anyway. The interlude starts off with Chronicler and Quoth extricating themselves from the story. Also, as an audience, we are extricating ourselves from the story. We're left with a little bit of a cliffhanger, a little bit of premonition happening at the end of the last section. Quoth seems happy. He has all of these ideas of going to the university stuck in his head and dancing around, and he's got these plans and anticipation. And then we get ripped out of the story that we're being told and back to the story we started with. Yeah, these little interludes with our framing device get sort of a breather and also remind us of the stakes of everything and where things will ultimately end up. I enjoy these little interludes. They're sometimes comedic, sometimes heartbreaking, but they're always a way to sort of give us a reminder of the context. And it's also in this interlude that we first have an encounter between Bast and Chronicler when Quoth catches Bast doing his best Samwise Gamgee impersonation. We're dropping no eaves. <laughs> Not terribly convincing, though, in his excuse of reading Kellum Tenture. Yeah, obviously. Bast, I think, in terms of our lens, trying to pull one over on Quoth is unwise. Both also continued his, I am the smartest person in any room that I am ever in, routine. Says, I don't know what they did at the university when an eavesdropper was caught. I was never caught. And I'm just sitting here thinking, that is such a petty thing to say. 
Isn't it, though? Come on, he's that smart. You mean to tell me he never read the rules? Never read the bylaws? But back to Bast a little bit. How much did you manage to overhear? And Bast is just sitting there. He kind of reminds me of a cat. I heard most of it. I have good ears. Then moving forward, and I love the interactions between Bast and Chronicler. It's also here that we get our first hints of Bast's otherworldly nature. And this is through Chronicler being the first person to have the perception to actually recognize what he's looking at when he sees Bast. In this instance, Chronicler has the ability to see through the glamour. And we also know that he's something of a sympathist and namer himself. We learn that he knows the name of Iron. One thing I did hear a theory about was that in the story, if Quoth hears the name of a binding and it's the word or it's something intelligible, then it's something that Quoth knows. You otherwise would hear a different word, like Edro. But in this, it says that Chronicler spoke the name Iron. So I wonder if, much like being fluent in multiple languages, if the thing that you hear sounds like what you know it to be, if that means that you actually know the name of that thing. Where if it sounds like a foreign word, then you don't know the name of that thing. It's like that old trope in movies where characters speak foreign languages among themselves, and the only characters there speak that language, they all seem to speak English. But the moment someone who does not speak their language but speaks English is there, they start speaking their own language. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So this is our second element or thing that a character has known the name of, as in capital N name. Iron, he said, his voice sounding with strange resonance, as if it were in order to be obeyed. And I thought, that's very strong, and iron is very strong. It's unbending, but it's also kind of brittle. Which could kind of describe Chronicler. Yeah, he has a very ironclad view of what the world is or how it should be, but it doesn't always hold up under the strongest of scrutiny. And not to be outdone, after... Chronicler binds Bast, and Bast becomes absolutely furious and seems to turn into a little bit of a honey badger. Quoth says stop, and his voice struck the air like a commandment. So there's a lot of comparing strength here. In this case, Quoth kind of comes across as the dad saying, Okay, you guys, knock it off. Otherwise, I'm turning the story right around and we're going back home. Anyone who grew up with siblings recognizes that one. In addition to that, there's also him saying, there is no reason for you two to be anything other than friends. Here, forced friendship. Play nice. (laughs) Though, one of the things I really loved about this section is how he says, I don't want my friends hurting each other. The fact that he is describing Chronicler, whom he has really only just met, as a friend is kind of touching to me. He strikes me as someone who at this point in his life doesn't have a whole lot in the way of friends. He's got customers and Bast. One sentence that did stand out to me because of a single word is, If there is one thing I will not abide, 
it is the folly of a willful pride, which A, folly, but B, Kvoth saying, I will not abide a willful pride. Oh, it is the pot calling the kettle black. What he really means is someone else's willful pride. That's his game. As a little wrap up to this section, and to continue, the Kvoth thinks he is way smarter than every other person. He looks at Bass and he just goes, how much did you hear? He's not interested in excuses. He's not interested in Bast's attempt to assert his own intelligence. I would like to also mention that there are a few times in this short interlude where Kvoth changes. He turns back into the jovial innkeeper. And then while he's in dad mode, his eyes change color, his demeanor changes, his countenance changes. And the way Rothfuss describes his grip, it's like iron as he's holding Chronicler and Bast apart. He's never described as this excessively muscular guy, but that's a very strong, almost supernatural element there. And then Chronicler thinks to himself, how did I ever mistake him for an innkeeper, even for a moment? So his eyes change color, they're nearly black. Kvoth then pours something from a green bottle, and the simple gesture changes him. He seems to fade back into himself. And Chronicler feels a pang of loss as he stares at the innkeeper. He's finding it hard to believe that the two different versions of Quoth that he sees in the same man are the same man. And then in a very heavy-handed but still good storytelling way, we're being told that the story will become darker from here on out. And now the chapter, The Name of the Wind. Hey, that's the name of the book. Yeah, in this chapter, we get to see Quoth really hit his first wall. And he's not someone used to hitting walls. One thing that I'd like to talk about here is the contrast between sympathy and what Quoth refers to as storybook magic. Sympathy is really cause and effect. It's all about actions and reactions and everything carries a price. It's almost like physics. Right. It's a metaphysics of sort. For instance, lighting a fire, you have to have your heat source somewhere. And so that source could be something external, or it might be your own body heat. It might take a toll on the wielder, and it requires intense will. Whereas you hear the stories of Taberlin the Great in his storybook magic, who knows the name of all things, he finds himself in a situation, he speaks a few words, and then he just walks out of there. There doesn't seem to be any consequences for his actions. Finds himself in a room with no windows or doors or anything like that. He's like, oh, I told the stone to break and it broke, and then I walked out, and then I told the wind to catch me, and so I was fine. <laughs> the end. But there doesn't seem to be a cost for any of that. And then sympathy itself requires... A conversion. It requires a source and an end. And even the smallest little parlor tricks require intense acts of will. Never mind the act of walking out a locked room, blowing a hole in the wall. Something as simple as lifting a small pebble requires intense concentration. So yeah, Kvothe feels like it's a bit of a letdown. 
he mentions that he wants to learn magic like calling the name of the wind. But things that appear effortless from another person usually aren't. If you think about how artists have to learn their craft, they have to study. They aren't born with a talent for these things. They practice. For every amazing picture you see someone draw, there are pages and pages and pages of absolute drivel. And you think about musicians. You look at a great guitar player going through a solo on stage and they make it look so easy. But the moment I pick up my guitar to try and emulate that and I'm plunking away just trying to string a few notes together in something that sounds vaguely like what they were trying to do. It takes a lot of work and it's not instantaneous. Though Calling the Wind is less academic and seems more accidental, at least at first. I would agree with that. There's an element of the unconscious to it. That'll be a discussion for another time. Continuing on with our lens of smartest kid in the room, Ben starts asking all of the have I got a puzzle for you questions. This little section, this couple of paragraphs, illustrates that while Quoth is not typically what one would necessarily call mean or cruel, because I don't think he is. I think he's willfully ignorant quite often. But I don't think that he's outright cruel to most people. He does enjoy finding a clever excuse for lateral thinking, though. He has a capacity for meanness and cruelty. Being asked, how would you take down that bird? He says, I wouldn't. But when he's pressed, he finds a rather disturbing way to do it. Well, first there's the, I'll have somebody else shoot it down. Right, so he abdicates his responsibility. But there's also that element where he's asking, why would I? Which I do appreciate. Why yeah. would I do this thing? It seems unnecessary. Although the reason that he is spurred to, the bird said something mean about your mother, is pretty petty. <laughs> I also think, though, that he maybe just doesn't want to fight Ben too much. I think he enjoys being clever. But the idea of binding a feather to a bird and then dissolving the oil from the bird's feathers to bring it down, it seems like unnecessary cruelty to me. What would be happening to the bird is physics that keep it soaring, the things that our natural instincts for this bird would just stop working and it would drop. It's like ripping massive holes in a parachute. It yeah. seems cruel. The entire exercise is cruel. So after being told that he can't just have somebody shoot the bird down, he has to do it himself. Quoth says, you never make this easy, do you? And frankly, it's not a teacher's job to make it easy. A teacher's job is to make it so that the student has to think and learn. So after being denied over and over again for all of the clever answers that he has, he's asked again, so what would you do? He tries to trick Ben, which is never going to work. But he tries to trick Ben into telling him how to call the wind. And then he gets smacked in the face with the fact that he's a stupid kid. And I would actually argue that Ben 
also gets smacked in the face with the fact that Kvothe is a kid. Yep, it is, as I said, the difference between intelligence and maturity. It's a reason why Int and Wiz are two separate stats in D&D. Poor dorks. Anywho, he gets this fantastically, brilliantly stupid plan of, I'm just going to bind the air outside the atmosphere to my lungs, because that works. And here it is that we see again, with sympathy, everything has a price, and his lungs cannot pay it. He's trying to take in another breath, and he is drowning on land. But as a little capper, in order to save him, Ben calls the wind. Not that it does Quoth any good. Quoth is too dazed to notice or to hear it or to understand. But what he recognizes is it's a leaf in lightning, and the thunderclap was black. This incident represents a turning point for his relationship with Avanthi. After this, Abanthi seems a lot more guarded, more cautious in what he teaches him. And I think part of it is that he recognizes that Quoth knows just enough to get himself into trouble, but not enough to get him out. An adult Quoth, as the narrator, even says, in hindsight, what I had done was glaringly stupid. Which does lead us to believe that Quoth can learn. Oh, absolutely. He's a very intelligent person. He learns from some of his mistakes. Not all of them. Not most of them. He doesn't try to do this trick again, though. <laughs> That's fair. He does generally only do a stupid thing once. Or at least the same stupid thing once. So as we go on, we get another little interlude between Quoth and his parents. As I think you've pointed out, every time that we see Quoth interact with his parents... It's very idealistic. Even when he's getting into trouble, he's not really being treated like a kid who is in trouble. He gets a gentle chiding and maybe the occasional talking to. But at the end of the day, he's just sort of like this adorable little troublemaker, like a high fantasy Dennis the Menace. Every time that you see his parents together, they're loving and sweet. In this particular case, Quoth's dad is rubbing his mom's shoulders. They're very affectionate to one another. They're very affectionate to Quoth. They're very understanding of Quoth. And I like this little section for a few reasons. It shows masculinity in a way that is non-toxic. I was actually just going to say that. I love that not only does Quoth's mother kiss him, but Quoth's father does too, which is a very welcome change of pace. Men don't kiss their children. Especially their male children. But here, Quoth's father kisses him, hugs him, and shows physical affection openly. He also is the one who offers to sew Quoth's shirt back up. Not only that, but he says, if you do something like this again, you'll have to sew it up. There is no expectation that sewing is women's work. This is where we get our first hints that the trooper life, particularly as it's practiced by the Edema Rue, is a lot more egalitarian than what would be normal in these sorts of stories. Right. We get a lot of masculinity by way of... Ash-holishness. In a lot of fantasy novels. 
So one of the things that struck me about gender roles in this series is Quoth, I think, oftentimes takes for granted a relatively modern egalitarian sensibility that is not the norm either in most high fantasy worlds and also in the world at large that he lives in. I think that most of the characters in this book that we are supposed to be sympathetic towards have the more egalitarian attitudes and the less chauvinistic ways of being. And I would say that Quoth never underestimates people simply because of their gender. I agree with that. What I was specifically getting at is the power structures in the world at large mirror what we would see in a stereotypical fantasy novel. Even as Quoth himself and many of the people that he considers friends are far more enlightened in that regard, the story takes place in a world where property is passed down through the male lineage, where it's unusual for women to join the Arcanum because they're not expected to be interested in it, where women are oftentimes viewed by some of the men in the story, again, not protagonists, but men at large, as objects. He still lives in a world that is not at a level that we would consider enlightened, and not that we're enlightened either. There are some characters that are viewed through a lens that is more sexist, and it's something that because we're seeing Quoth see these things, we're meant to believe that Quoth is less sexist or less prejudiced than other characters, namely him. The one really, really egregious, hit-you-in-the-face instance of royal ashholery that we see is him treating a girl that comes into his class late very poorly and very disgustingly and saying, please cross your legs so that the gates to hell are no longer open. It's heavy-handed to make him look like a complete jerk, but it works. The version of him that we meet is a complete and utter jerk who has no business teaching anyone. As we near the end of the chapter, we get to hear a little more of Quoth's father's personality. A lot of Quoth's attitudes come from Arladin. Arladin does not appreciate poetry. He specifically thinks that poets are musicians who can't sing. He would absolutely loathe my recaps. I do like the sentence, Words have to find a man's mind before they can touch his heart, and some men's minds are woefully small targets. There is a little bit of condescension there. There's also a bit of no one realizing that this could apply to them. Though Lorian is still one of the wisest people, and she says, elitist, you're just getting old. Which, admittedly, when I was younger, I thought that all of the old people were sticking the muds and I'd never, ever, ever be like that. I thought that I'd always be curious in new music. I thought I'd always be curious about the same things that I was curious about when I was a kid and that I didn't need to learn anything deeply and I didn't need to do any of these things because I would have lots and lots of time to do it when I was older. I would always be a person who read voraciously. I'd always be a person, blah, 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 blah. I didn't realize I was being a bit of an elitist at the time. And I didn't realize that things change as you get older. Time seems to go faster. You run out of time and energy to do the same things that you did when you were a kid. And your attitudes, 
I hope, change as you get older. Things become less black and white and shades of gray start filling in. Generally, that's the case, though sometimes the black and white becomes starker for some people. Elitist. (laughs) You're just getting old. I am. As the chapter ends, we get a little bit of these teases that Ben doles out about Lanray. This is our second mention of that name. The first was in regard to the song that Arladin was working on regarding the Chandrian. And here we get only just a very fleeting brief description, just the offhand mention. We don't even really get a good description because what we get is Quoth half remembering the wrong things from other stories. Then Abanthi gives Quoth the Uncle Ben conversation, power and responsibility. A little bit of idiocy is fine for someone who doesn't have a whole lot of power. A little bit of idiocy for someone who has a lot of power suddenly means a lot. The more power you have, the more responsibility you should have. And the more dangerous even a little bit of idiocy could be. With great power must also come great responsibility. I do want to circle back a little bit and talk about how they came across the gray stones. This is also where we see that the inn gets its name, the Waystone Inn. And we get a hint that there's a superstition associated with stopping at them every time you see them. So these things that have multiple names, Greystones, Waystones, Standing Stones, they're supposed to bring good luck. And what Arlenin says is, it's tradition, my boy, and superstition. They are one and the same anyway. I do find that telling, and also in our own world, we're coming up on times of the year that are full of tradition. And I am a person who kind of balks at tradition. I don't like having the exact same thing for dinner every time that we have Thanksgiving dinner. I'd like to try something new. I don't like trying the same thing over and over and over again. That's the definition of insanity. You can't have a different result, and you can't experience something new if you keep doing the same thing that you've always done. And sometimes that new thing is good and sometimes it's not, but I think it's always worth trying. I think Arladin is also at the same time maybe a little overly dismissive of tradition because sometimes it's not just superstition. Tradition should always be interrogated to be understood, but it can be a way of tying you to the past in a good way. You can use tradition as a way to remember where you came from. You can use it as a way to think about your roots and to think about how things came to be. But doing it for tradition's sake, just doing it blindly, that's where it gets into superstition. Also where I think we get into trouble. I like the tradition of Thanksgiving more than I like the roots of Thanksgiving, let's say. Again, with the smartest kid in the room, I'm sure every single person has actually heard the flippant response to why do we celebrate American Thanksgiving the way that we celebrated it basically celebrates taking land from people who were here first. And yes, I agree with that statement. I have been the little shirt that says that statement. And I don't like that aspect. But what I do like is the parts of Thanksgiving that are meant to Have you interacting with your family or your chosen family or your very close friends? 
and finding things to be thankful for. And in the same way with how these standing stones are tradition to stop at. It's an excuse to stop and not have to continue pushing hard. Morian says, whatever the season, that I am on the road, I look for a reason, loden or laystone, to lay down my load. Where Arladin, who is a little more dismissive, does say the traditional poem, which is, like a drawstone, even in our sleep, standing stone by old road is the way, to lead you ever deeper into fay. Laystone as you lay in hill or dell, graystone leads to something something l. He doesn't even remember. Me being the smartest kid in the room right now, it would make it so much easier on him if he just put it to music. <laughs> and at the end of this chapter, we also get yet another little brief foreshadowing line. Quoth thought that everything would be smoothed over and that things would go back to normal for him if he just gave it a little bit of time. And by a little bit of time, he probably means like three days, because let's just face it, Quoth is impatient. He's 12 years old. Little did I know that our time was quickly drawing to an end. It's ominous, though we as rereaders know that this particular bit is not necessarily ominous. Ben is able to find a way to settle down, at least for now. I'm curious if Quoth will ever find his way back to Ben. So do you want to talk a little bit about how the smartest kid in the room has affected our own lives? Any stories that we have to tell? Yeah. I was this kid a lot of times growing up. And it was a real shock to go from being generally viewed as the smartest kid in the room to going to college and finding that I was in a room with a bunch of people who were used to being the smartest kids in the room. And a lot of them were probably smarter than me. I also had that experience, mostly with my second college. I went back to school when I was in my late 20s, and a lot of my co-students were in their early 20s or maybe even younger. The school that I went to was called DigiPen, which I would describe as a college devoted to teaching how to make video games and how they would like to describe themselves as being an institute of technology where a lot of the students learn how to make video games. The school is full of nerds. The teachers are nerds. The students are nerds. And there is not a single person there who wasn't the smartest kid at their high school. And my first day in one of my classes, the program director came and did a talk. And the program director is very intelligent. He is somebody that I enjoy learning from. He can explain concepts that I find extremely complex very simply. He has years and years of industry experience, and he was talking about all of these experiences that he had being a narrative designer, being a technical designer, being a coder. And this kid, and I say kid because he acted like a kid. I have no idea how old he was. It has nothing to do with his actual age. But this kid in the back of the room asked him a question that was more of a look at me, I'm a smart person. And essentially said that he was a narrative designer and an author. He made it sound like he thought that he was the smartest person in that room, despite the fact that there were people twice his age who were obviously the smartest people in that room. 
And my friend and I looked at each other and we were both a little bit older. We're both close to 30. We look at each other and just sigh and do the audible eye roll. It's one thing to be on the far right end of the bell curve. And it's another thing completely to think that you are and to act as if you are. You're as smart as you are. That's a fact. Sometimes you're smarter than other people. Sometimes you're not. You rarely seem smarter than other people when you are touting your own intelligence. You're either smarter or you're not, but trying to seem like you are or get points for being that is never a good look. Nobody likes a great grubber. If you think you know everything, you probably don't. I once had a friend tell me that if you're in a band and you're the best musician in that band, it's time for you to get a new band because you're no longer pushing yourself. You're no longer surrounded by people who are challenging you and you don't grow. Needing to be the smartest person in the room, it's not about intelligence, it's about ego. Nobody comes out of that looking good. I think we say all of this from a standpoint of we have been that kid. I know that I was that kid. I know that I had a lot of attitudes that were very elitist, that were very, I'm smarter than everybody else in this room. I don't care that I don't have experience. I am really, really, really smart and you're going to respect me. Yes, yes, you're very smart. Shut up. To quote Peter Falk from The Princess Bride. Not to say that being intelligent or being smart is a bad thing. I just respect the people who are quietly intelligent more. Be as smart as you are. You never have to apologize for that. It's then the comparison where you run into the problems. And on that note, I think it's time for us to talk about our Fernemos. Because we do want to talk about somebody who is practically wise and somebody that we can model our own self after. This week it is my turn. I do find that in the beginning of the book, there aren't a whole lot of choices, which is why we've doubled up a few times, which is why we have had a hard time not choosing Kvothe, although Kvothe is not wise. Hasn't been that hard. (laughs) Two people in the chapter, it's the other person. Yep. But in this couple of chapters, the interlude in the chapter that we went over, we've got adult Kvothe, Bast, Chronicler, Ben, no, Kid Kvothe, really no, Kvothe's parents. I chose Arladen. Ooh, a new one. Right, because we've chosen Lorian a lot. Lorian doesn't have a whole lot to do in this, neither does Arladen, but I chose him because he gives good examples of anti-toxicity in this chapter. It is mentioned specifically that he gives Quoth a kiss, his 12-year-old son. In our society, by that point, a lot of men would be hesitant to kiss their male children, but there's no hesitation, there's no thought that this is abnormal or unwanted. It's just, let me give you a kiss and give you affection. On top of which, he also is giving his wife affection without any embarrassment or any expectation of quid pro quo or any such thing. He's unabashedly being affectionate. He's unabashedly being himself. He also offers to sew up Quoth's shirt. He doesn't ask a whole lot of questions about what happened. He just accepts that what happened happened and that what happened didn't turn out catastrophic. 
And I think that there's some wisdom to that, not overanalyzing what has happened before. It's clear that while Arladin and Lorien are not overbearing or anything, they're delightfully affectionate towards one another and towards Quoth and their friends. I love that. I chose Arladin because I think that we all need to choose how we're expressing affection, how we express ourselves in a way that is not doing it for other people and not in that way that people say, oh, I don't care what other people think because that's performative. He's not doing it to be performative. He's doing it because that's who he is. It's the difference between someone who just says, I'm nonconformist, and then the person who just is maybe a little different and makes no effort to hide it or to call attention to it. They just are. And those sorts of people are delightful. We could use more of them. I think you chose well. Thank you. At this point, we will be moving on to the interesting fact of the week. We're once again going to take to heart the lessons of Master Eldon and try and find an interesting fact. I think I've got one picked out that you're going to love. All right. Interest me. You got it. And if not, I'll have to eat yet more cherries. I'm not about to let that happen. Well, you already got to eat one. I'd hate to make it two. So humpback whales are known to protect their young from predators like orcas and sharks, which makes sense because in their youth, whales are extremely vulnerable to predation, whereas a single adult humpback whale can take on an entire pod of orcas. However, scientists have observed humpbacks also protecting other species like sunfish, seals, and even humans from underwater threats. While it looks an awful lot like altruism, we have to be careful not to ascribe human psychology to animals we're only beginning to understand. Some scientists hypothesize that because only some humpbacks exhibit this rescue behavior, and because many of those that do also bear scars, perhaps from when they were calves, it might be personal for them, like some sort of cetacean Batman. It's also possible that the humpbacks are responding to auditory calls made by predators such as orcas rather than the prey, and the humpbacks don't know what species they're protecting until they've already committed energy to swimming into battle. It could be some combination of both. Either way, if you're out at sea and a humpback swims towards you, pay attention to what they're trying to protect you from. So every time I think about humpback whales, I'm pretty sure you, you know where I'm going on this, but I think of Star Trek Four. With George and Gracie? Yes. And transparent aluminum. <laughs> anyway. So, is that interesting? I do find it actually very interesting. Again, you're right. We have to make sure that we're not ascribing human motivations to animals. We do this a lot to our own pets. I ask Sokka, why are you doing that more often than I should? Because the reason is he's a cat. I think figuring out why the humpbacks are doing that would be fascinating. As objective as scientists have tried to be, Regarding this, I'm sure that most of them have a really hard time not ascribing human values onto these animals. In the article I found, there's a video of a humpback protecting a diver in the water from a tiger shark. And the whole experience is actually really terrifying because you see the whale coming up out from the deeps. It's just this huge hulking creature going right towards the diver. She's just a snorkeler. She doesn't even have a scuba outfit or anything. And it's trying to push her away with its fin further towards shore. 
she doesn't know why it's doing this and she's freaking out initially and she's worked with humpbacks for a long time she's very familiar in the water she knows to give them their space and usually they give her space so this is really strange behavior for her to see and then finally it herds her to her boat she gets on and looks in the water and there's a tiger shark right down there and she realizes exactly what it was it's really cool and really scary Speaking of the video made it more interesting to me. I really want to see this now. Also, to our audience, should you wish to see this video, it will be in our show notes on Patreon. There'll be a link for it. I also confess I was interested in this because I was a huge fan of whales and sharks and such when I was a little kid, so this one brought that out in me. I also was a huge fan of whales when I was a kid. And dinosaurs. Oh, absolutely. All of this stuff is great. <laughs> you do not have to eat two cherries. <laughs> now it's time for us to find our seven words. It's your turn to share the words from the book. So what do you have? There were a lot of instances of eight word sentences and five word sentences that I would have loved to have shared in this. But that's not the rules. So those are not what I picked. Instead, what I picked is... We have everything here at the Waystone. The reason that I chose it, Greystones and Waystones, there's mention of it leading you to Fay, And in a place that is very infrequently visited by merchants or tinkers, in a place where Kvothe is able to recall with perfect clarity things that happened when he was 11, the Waystone Inn feels slightly fey around the edges. There's also a little bit of clever marketing there too, because if tradition is you always have to stop when you pass a waystone, it means that anyone who observes that and sees the name of the inn will feel compelled to stop there. But I thought that the statement of we have everything here at the waystone. Then he goes on to say, accepting any customers, of course. Kvothe specifically describes that the Waystone has almost anything. Dark ale, pale wine, spiced cider, chocolate, coffee. And Chronicler looks at him and says chocolate would be great if you actually have any. Ultimately, he's not expecting to find something that luxurious this far from everywhere. And the statement of we have everything here at the Waystone. Everything? Well, it reminds me of the classic song, Alice's Restaurant, Massacre, and the line in the chorus is, you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant, except Alice, of course. Just walk on in, it's around about, about a half a mile from the railroad track. We're getting close to Thanksgiving as we record this, so it's on my mind. <laughs> All right, for my seven words, I decided to go a little bit meta this week with, I still need to find seven words. <laughs> you can only use that this once it's a one-time thing only it'll only ever work once but <laughs> i heard you say that just this morning and it made me smile and then i knew that i had my seven words i still need to find seven words i still need to find seven words <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> Mission accomplished. It's making you smile. <laughs> and giggle. <laughs> good job. Thanks. You did good too. Thank you. 
And with that, we come to the end of our podcast for this week. Thanks for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we discuss chapters 15, 16, and 17 of Name of the Wind through a lens of folly. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Let me just do a quick warm-up here. I'm sure it sounds terrible through the headphones. It sounds <laughs> I'm disgusting. So sorry. I'm sorry about that. It sounds so gross. I'm sorry. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Red Limber leather. up that tongue. Yep, I got it. <laughs>